Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Atlantic Power Corporation third quarter 2020 results and conference call. All participants will be in the Sonoli mode. Should you need assistance, please sit to our conference specialist for pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchstone phone. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Please note, today's event is being recorded. And now I'd like to turn the conference over to Jim Moore, President and CEO. Mr. Moore, please go ahead. Welcome, and thank you for joining us this morning. This is Ron Bailabreski, Director of Finance at Atlantic Power. Our results for the three and nine months ended September 30th, 2020, were issued by press release yesterday afternoon and are available on our website, www.atlanticpower.com and on Edgar and CDAR. Management's prepared remarks and the accompanying presentation for today's call and webcast can be found in the conference call section of our website. A replay of today's webcast will be available on our website for a period of one year. Financial figures that we will be presenting are stated in US dollars and are approximate unless otherwise noted. Please be advised this conference call and presentation will contain forward-looking statements. As discussed in the company's safe harbor statement on page two of today's presentation, these statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties that are more fully described in our various securities filings. Actual results may differ materially from such forward-looking statements. In addition, the financial results in the press release and the presentation include both GAAP and non-GAAP measures, including project-adjusted EBITDA. For reconciliations of this measure to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measure, to the extent that they are available without unreasonable effort, please refer to the press release, the appendix of today's presentation, our annual report on Form 10-K, or our quarterly reports on Form 10-Q, all of which are available on our website. Now I'll turn the call over to Jim Moore, President and CEO of Atlantic Power. Thank you, Ron. Welcome, everyone. Good morning. With me on the call this morning are Terry Ronan, our CFO, Goko Felici, our EVP Commercial Development, Nick Galati, our SVP Operations, and several other members of the Atlantic Power Management Team. All of us at Atlantic Power hope that this call finds you and your families healthy and safe. The results for the third quarter are provided in the press release, the presentation, and the prepared remarks, which were posted on our website last evening. Please review those materials. I will briefly cover key points this morning. Following my remarks, we will take your questions. As highlighted on page four of the presentation, our safety performance numbers have improved as a result of continued focus on this critical area with two recordable incidents year to date down from seven a year ago. We're continuing to manage well through the pandemic. To date, we have not experienced a material impact on our business or on our plan operations. Our financial results for the third quarter year to date Keep us on track to achieve our 2020 guidance for project-adjusted EBITDA. We have continued to repay debt 
using our strong operating cash flow from our existing businesses. Year to date, we have repaid $61 million of debt, including our equity-owned chambers project. Our consolidated leverage ratio at September 30th was 3.9 times, or 3.7 times net of cash. We expect that continued debt repayment and anticipated higher project-adjusted EBITDA in the fourth quarter should result in an improved leverage ratio at year-end. On the operations front, we returned Cadillac plant service in August and expect to reach a final settlement of our insurance claim by year-end. Also, in August, we returned the Williams Lake plant to service slightly ahead of schedule. Fuel availability has improved recently. As a result, we now expect Williams Lake to generate modestly positive project EBITDA this year, and we expect continued improvement next year. On the commercial front, in September, we executed a new capacity agreement for Oxnard for 2021 that should yield positive project adjusted EBITDA next year, and we are currently exploring opportunities for 2022. At CalStock, where the PPA is scheduled to expire in December, we are optimistic that another short-term extension will be granted that would provide time to see if the parties can agree on a longer-term arrangement for the plant. We have had a strong year in terms of capital allocation. Through July, we invested $48 million in common and preferred share repurchases which represented a significant acceleration of return of capital to shareholders. Let me know, we have two interesting, significant investors. One is a fund with intrinsic value in its name, and the other is called Humble Capital. Well, we focus on intrinsic value in making capital allocation decisions. We also try to be humble, but it's probably fair to say our record on returning capital to shareholders is strong. $80 million of common share repurchases and another $25 million of preferreds in the last five years, with $48 million of that occurring this year. We have reduced shares outstanding during that period from a high of 122 million shares to the current level of approximately 89 million. On our second quarter call in August, we said we would need to rebuild cash before considering another substantial issuer bid or SIB. At the end of September, we had $9 million in discretionary cash. We expect to reach about $20 million by year-end, with the insurance settlement added to the $9 million. That level of discretionary cash would allow us to consider an SIB for either common or preferred shares, or both, with manageable cost relative to the size of an SIB. We can also use our normal course issuer bid if we decide against an SIB but the NCIB limits the amount of repurchases relative to an SIB. Actions speak louder than words. So when we say we'll move with speed and scale when opportunities and cash levels are attractive, it's important to remember we have done so with 150 million of capital allocated to repurchases of common and preferred shares and asset acquisitions in the last five years. We expect to take the same approach with the cash flow in excess of required debt repayment that we expect to generate over the next five years. As we have said over the past few quarters, that's expected to be about $115 million to $165 million of discretionary cash. So it's $115 million 
to $165 million of discretionary cash versus a current market cap of $180 million or so. We expect the markets will catch up with intrinsic value one way or the other. I'll conclude with the chart on page five of the presentation. We continue to see signs of slight improvement in power markets as reliability issues from an over-reliance on intermittent power sources emerge. On a broader level, we may be near a bottom in the long down cycle in commodities. The chart shows the relative performance of commodities index versus the S&P 500. It's worth a look. The ratio is currently at the lowest level in 50 years. We will now take your questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchstone phone. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble the roster. And the first question comes from Nelson Ng with RBC Capital. Great, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, just, just a quick question on the biomass facilities. I know that uh, I think this past year we've seen a bit of downtime and uh, operating issues at a number of the plants. Just uh, from a big picture perspective, like are those facilities just more difficult to operate? Are you like, is there any change uh, required in terms of uh, how they operate? Like, what's your what's your take on some of the uh, uh, headwinds you've uh, seen on your biomass facilities. Hey Nelson, this is Nick Galati. Um, no, I think in terms of the, the biomass issues that we had um, at Grayling and Craven particularly, um, issues were centered around the steam turbine uh, on the steam cycle side really had nothing to do with the fact that the fuel was biomass. So I think uh, a bit of bad luck where, both, where we had issues with turbines at both plants in the same year. Uh, routine inspections that ended up being more work than anticipated. Uh, but I think generally the, the plants are running well. Uh, our, plant, our biomass plants are running well. Uh, and I, I think uh, going forward we expect, <coughs> excuse me, at those plants, the, the turbines being repaired that we, we expect to, to run through the life of the PPA with those turbines. Okay, thanks. Um, my, my next question is more big picture as well. Um, like given the likely Biden government, I'm not like just big picture on what you think the impact is. I guess uh, we're we're not sure how much of his uh, climate change policies he can push through, which includes uh, carbon neutrality for the power sector in 2035. Uh, obviously, you have some gas-fired facilities and I guess one coal facility. But uh, what's your what's your take on that, Jim? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I think two areas. One is on taxes and. Uh, I think a lot of that will be determined by the, the Georgia outcome. If it's if it's 50 uh, one way, uh, then then I think they'll they'll get some taxes thrown. If it's more than that, probably not. But I'm no better at political prognostication than anybody else. I think the uh, the more likely 
thing to happen and, and where they don't need the Senate is the uh, on the power side. I expect Biden, you know, will put us back into Paris and he'll ban fracking on federal lands, which might actually be uh, a supply enhancement uh, for for oil and gas stocks. You know, you might you might see prices go up. Uh, as always, there's these unintended consequences. So it's really hard to predict, you know, what's going to come out of Washington and, and what are the real impacts. I don't see any immediate uh, uh, big upsides or downsides to anything coming out of Washington in any of the remaining uh, scenarios. I do expect uh, Biden would uh, use executive orders uh, to, to, to do things on the EPA, Paris, and, and, and fracking. Uh, None of that should have a huge impact on us. I mean, I think like 2035 carbon neutrality and, 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 and this, you know, the, the Green New Deal. I mean, th- those things are just fairy tales. It's never going to happen. It physically can't happen. It's just not the math doesn't work. And, and there's a number of good, uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates has been looking at this. And his argument is if you buy the conventional wisdom, which is catastrophic climate change, uh, uh, near term or not even near term, you know, reasonable term, you got to be doing nuclear. I think he's going to write a book on that. And, uh, you know, when you start digging into these things and looking at the numbers, uh, it's, it's very difficult to manage CO2 with wind and solar. The current technology is just not great. It's not, it's not good on cost despite the, uh, uh, the, the, the headlines you see and the uh, levelized uh, cost of energy analysis, as you see, you, you know, when we get high levels of penetration in a jurisdiction, we get high prices. New England has high prices. California has high prices. Uh, there's a good book out, a uh, guy named, I think it's Michael Schellenberger, called Apocalypse Not, who's, a, who's an environmentalist. You know, and and I'm I consider myself an environmental steward. Moved to Vermont in 2001 and started a wind energy company up. I've been on the boards of solar companies. Uh, you know, I'm I'm you know happy to buy into wind and solar if the if the prices uh, make sense for us. Uh, but in, in terms of public policy, these things that politicians are throwing out. You know, they're 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 fairy tales. And uh, and uh, now what can happen is before the math and the physics intrude, you, you'll get price spikes, I think. And and, and and then, you know, as a holder of assets, that's going to be good for us. I think you're seeing in California, people are starting to wake up to the fact that you need a heck of a lot more wind and solar. Than, than, than CCGT, natural gas plants, to balance a grid and make it reliable. And if you're going to pour more demand on through EVs, then you're going to have to have more electricity. You know, so I mean, EVs would be terrific for this company uh, and and uh, for all electric providers. Uh, uh, but some of these things the politicians say are are just you know they're not they're not really. Uh, you know, they, 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 they're kind of liberal arts analysis. They're not STEM analysis, you know, and, uh, and if I think if you really dig into it, it's, it's just not going to happen that way. Uh, and, uh, uh, now having said that at the margins, you know, people trying to do things that are ultimately not feasible in the time frame they're laying out can have a material impact on our business. I think it's been a headwind, it's been a headwind for us for, you know, 10 or 20 years now that, uh, you know, wind and solar early on when I, when I shifted our company up in Vermont, uh, 
2001 to wind. You had terrific returns and people were skeptical about the uh, technology. And now we've hit the other end of the spectrum where uh, the returns are, are really modest to poor. And, uh, and and the public uh, opinion and the conventional wisdom is all over it. So the pendulum has swung completely to the other side. And, and frankly, the conventional wisdom and the political wisdom, they, they're not looking at the environmental impact and they're not looking at the efficacy of wind and solar on, on, uh, on uh, CO2. But I don't expect that to happen. You know, politicians don't do deep dives and analyze math and physics and economics and compare one one detriment to the environment to another detriment to the environment. You know, they just they just pick things that are popular. Uh, uh, so I think I think whichever way it comes out, you know, we're pretty well balanced. We have a hydro. You know, so if things like the New York policies continue to roll out, there's likely to be higher prices and uh, and it benefit our hydro facilities. If things like California get more widespread and people realize the limits of the current battery technology, lithium ion, and, and, and start realizing they need to have more reliable, more cost-effective uh, uh, ways to balance the grid, then then CCGT comes back in the frame, and we have we have plenty of that, and then uh, and biomass has its own kind of attributes. But uh, so that's a lo- that's a longer answer. But I think both on the tax side and on the energy policy side, we're fairly well balanced, and we we don't we didn't we don't see a big uh, uh, impact on the business either way. There wasn't the last four years, and there probably won't be the next four years. Okay, thanks for your uh, thoughts on that, Jim. Um, so just one last question before I get back in the queue. Um, like in terms of realizing shareholder value, you've been buying back uh, some stock, uh, but can you comment on the uh, degree at which you've looked at divesting assets? And obviously, like valuations for renewable assets, like hydro, as you mentioned, um, are, are at very attractive levels. I'm just wondering, uh, if you've looked at that uh, potential decision of divesting assets and whether there's any uh, key considerations or, or impediments to, to uh, divesting assets. Yeah. So we, we, we uh, uh, said, I think maybe last year now that we, you know, we, we come in every day, we rank order everything uh, on what's the current estimated returns, you know, when we're, when we're investing and we, we do the same thing on the divesting side. We've done a lot of divesting. I mean, we, we sold off our entire wind portfolio at a nice multiple and enabled us to uh, pay off our, our junk bonds. We've closed out a number of plants. We've, uh, we've sold maybe one other plant. Uh, uh, you know, we, between plant sales and, and closures, uh, I think there's a, a large percentage. Uh, uh, I don't have the number on top of my head, but it's probably over a quarter of the plants that, uh, that uh, were there when I showed up in 2015, we've either closed or sold. Uh, I think uh, the problem is we're a micro cap now, and and I think that hurts your share price and liquidity, and it makes it difficult to to do things. So uh, uh, I think you know we could sell off the hydro, and I think we could get an attractive price, uh, uh, whether or not it's a price that's above what's implied in the in the current share price. Uh, uh, you can't be sure, but I because you don't know what actually the market's implying. But I, I assume, uh, you know, uh, if you sold off the hydro, we 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 get better value uh, 
than than the current price. But that's that's the same thing for the whole company. I mean, that's that's why we've been aggressively buying in shares. Uh, you know, we've expressed our opinion on the share price with uh, a boatload of share buybacks over the last five years, and particularly this year. Uh, and uh, we're always open. We're, we're, we we uh, uh, we're deal people, and uh, we're always open to sell anything at the right price, and we're always open to buy anything at the right price. I think just to, to take a decision that gee, we're going to spin out. We, we we've looked at spinning out on a tax-free basis the hydro a number of times. Uh, you know, or to sell them for cash. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tax consequences, uh, and then you have to decide is 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 the value of of that that transaction plus the stub company in the public market better than if you just went ahead and sold the whole company off. Uh, and uh, you know, but we're we're the opposite of entrenched management, and we're 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 deal people. We're always looking at buying assets or doing kind of corporate M&A deals or, or selling, you know, assets. And we're very open to corporate M&A deals. And so everything's always on the table and we're always doing our numbers. And, uh, you know, we're as frustrated as anybody else. I mean, I've got a large share of my net worth in the company and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the thing to do when when prices seem to be disconnected from uh, economic reality, as you see it and forecast it, is to go ahead and buy, and that's what we've been doing on the share side. Uh, on the asset side, uh, you know, there's there's not a big demand for for uh, uh, biomass uh, uh, or coal, and uh, CCGT is, uh, is is turning into more of a merchant play and a, and a kind of a short the batteries play. Uh, and then the hydro we could pull out, and, and again we've we've looked at it for years now. On, you know, do we sell it? Do we spin it off? Is it better to sell the whole company together? And uh, you know, we it, 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 we're driven by what we're seeing in the markets, and and I think you can see by our capital allocation, if we see a chance to surface shareholder value uh, based on uh, what's going on in the markets, we, we move aggressively, and and so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take anything off the table. You know, we're very laser focused on how do we make the shareholders some money from holding these shares. Okay, just a quick clarification. You mentioned that you've looked at spinning out hydro or just divesting it outright, and you flagged the negative tax consequences. Like, does the like NOLs you have um, in Canada or the U.S. help in any way to offset those uh, tax yeah, consequences? Yeah, sure. They, they help on the federal level. They don't help on the state level. Uh, and then uh, we did it. We did a, uh, a corporate restructuring a few years back. And I think, you know, as, as the NOL sees and you get more efficient in how you use them. Uh, but uh, I, I haven't looked at the spinoff, uh, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, but I've, I've looked at it, I think four or five times over the last five years because uh Always keep in mind the John Malone, you know, tax-free spinoff kind of idea. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the, the the taxes, uh, the NOLs, as you say, would would help uh, offset uh, some of the federal taxes, but not the state taxes. And I, as I recall, I don't know if we've hit the point of uh, diminishing returns yet. But the the longer we hold them, the the more efficient we got in the NOLs vis-a-vis a hydro uh, spinoff. Uh, but again, the question would be, are you better off spinning them off or are you better off selling them or having an auction or 
are you better off selling the whole company? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's great. Thanks. I'll get back in the queue. Thank you. And the next question comes from Sean Stewart with TD Securities. Thanks. Good morning. Um, a few questions on recontracting initiatives, and I'll start with with CalStock. It, it sounds like you're targeting another six month short term extension. Uh, the, the question, I suppose, is, is longer term. How are you thinking about the long term contracting opportunity set for that asset, and and how do you advance that? What how should we think about longer term contracts for CalStock looking? I think this is Joe. Good morning, Sean. Um, first of all, when you mentioned six months, I think what we said is that uh, we expect that uh, the plant will be extended under a short-term extension. You know, we didn't specifically say six months, so uh, you know, I sort of just want to make sure that uh, we're clear on that. Uh, as, far, as, as far as longer-term contracting, the biggest struggle that we've had uh, in Ontario is uh, um, having a framework. You know, that, that, that we could engage on. If you, if you look at other jurisdictions like British, British Columbia, where we, were, where we were successful with Williams Lake, you know, the government recognized the non-power value of the assets, and, and, uh, and, and, and that's what's required for, for a biomass plant to be contracted because, as we all know, the cost of a biomass plant for electricity purposes only, generating electricity, it, it, they're just not competitive. Uh, and so the struggle in Ontario, uh, and this goes back to even the previous government, has been finding a path of engagement. Um, you know, when we received the last extension, uh, you know, the, a biomass review kicked off. Uh, and in August, um, you know, uh, an important document was issued. It was a report. It was this, I think it was Sustainable Growth. I think it was called Ontario's Forest uh, Sector Strategy. Uh, and it's referenced in, in the budget, I think, uh, that just came out on, I believe it's on page 153. And, and what the government is doing is, is it's, it's, it's focusing on growing the forestry sector. And as part of that uh, report that came out in August, uh, it included a commitment to putting a forest biomass action plan in place. And that's, and that's a plan that deals with the, you know, essentially the mill byproducts as a result of uh, growing the forestry sector. And so what's different now compared to where we were before is we now have a path of, for engagement. Um, you know, when, when uh, you know, the CalStock uh, can, now, can now be considered as an alternative for dealing with this, uh, you know, the plant residuals, the plant waste. Uh, and, you know, we haven't had that situation before uh, in Ontario. So what's happened is, is that there's no, I mean, let me stop saying there's no guarantee that, that you know that will that will negotiate successfully a longer term contract, but I think that you know what we have is uh, uh, you know a way to engage, and and we are engaging now. That's the good news. So so we'll see where this goes, but it's you know this has been a significant step change in Ontario. That, that's encouraging, and and beyond CalStock and and Oxnard, any detail you can give on other recontracting initiatives for assets. That are expiring uh, by the end of 2022. Uh, you said other than Calstock and Oxnard. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got some yeah, okay. context on those two, but beyond those, sure. those assets. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we have uh, Fredrickson coming up uh, in August of, of 2022, and that's that's a very important asset for us. Uh, and now we're within two years of the PPA expiration. Uh, 
And so, you know, we're, we're at the point now where uh, potential offtake is, you know, we'll consider looking at the assets. So, you know, we're beginning to ramp up our efforts there. Um, you know, we feel good about potential recontracting. The plant, you know, uh, is, is at a great location uh, for both power and natural gas. It's, it, it, it's at a very liquid point uh, uh, on the grid, you know, where it's located. Um, you, know, we're, you know, we're continuing to pursue all contracting op options. You know, we're, we're looking at potential utility RFPs. You know, we're talking directly to the PUDs. Uh, and we're considering other options also. So that, that, that'll be ramping up soon. But, you know, if you look at that asset, that asset's capacity factor has been strong. Uh, it's actually been up over uh, recent years, which, which is a good indicator of the value of the plant. It's, you know, we, we think it's clearly needed, particularly in a hydro-sensitive market like that, where, you know, you just have to have reliable capacity that you can turn on uh, to back up the hydro. So, um, you know, we're beginning to ramp that up. Um, too early to know, you know, when we'll have any more to say on it, but uh, you know, we're working on that. Uh, Kenilworth, you know, um, you know, we, we continue to engage with Merck. You know, we, we still feel good about the prospects for further, you know, a short short-term extension there. Um, and then in you know, Ontario, the uh, you know, the gas assets, um, you know, we, we just have to wait and see what happens in that market. The largely be driven by supply and demand. You know, the most recent Ontario forecast was that. Uh, I think issued by the IESO in July, uh, you know, showed a requirement, you know, maybe maybe 2022, 2023. Um, for, you know, so we're uh, you know we're we're ready there for the recontracting of Nipigon, uh and you know potentially bringing back by the, uh, either or both Cal, Cal uh, sorry Kappa Stacing or North Bay. So um, I think that about covers it. Uh, unless you have a question on a, a specific asset, I didn't didn't mention. No, that that's great. Um, one last question for me, and uh, and I'll turn it over. You, you mentioned that the Williams Lake feedstock situation was strong this quarter in tandem, I suppose, with surging lumber markets. It, it does seem, though, that there's a likelihood of further sawmill closures in B.C. over the midterm as, as timber supply continues to decline. How are you thinking about the the, the supply for that asset over the, the mid to long term? I think in the this is Nick Galati. I think in the the short and midterm, I think we're we're feeling pretty good. As you said, the the lumber supply has helped us with the mills. Uh, we've we've purchased two separate grinders to generate our own fuel with forest residuals. So I think that supply will be there. Uh, but it, from a long term standpoint, I think it's a you know it's everything we're seeing now is is on the short term. I mean we from month to month to up to a year in terms of contracting, but I think it's a uh, it, it'll be a it'll be a short term year with year over year for us in the, for now. Okay, uh, that's all I had. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And the next question comes from Romero of National Bank. Oh, good morning, everyone. Morning. Jim, you mentioned that we we could be at a at the bottom of the cycle in commodity and power markets. And you, you talked about some of the challenges of uh, running a grid on renewable energy. In the near term, if you have some challenges recontracting some of your uh, your assets with capacity, what, what would your sense be? Should you, you sit on those and, and wait? And, and does the market come back to these assets in a couple of years? Or, or looking out into the future, have you looked at things like 
uh, hydrogen, for example, and, and converting your um, combustion turbines to burning hydrogen, whether it's green or, or, or blue hydrogen. Can you just give, give some thoughts on, uh, on, on where you think that the, the market's going to head for some of these assets in the future? Yeah, so you, you always compare what could I sell the assets for today uh, versus what's the likely uh, recontracting scenario uh, on the assets. We, we, we like our positions at Curtis Palmer, which is obviously hydro, and we like our position at uh, Fredrickson, which is gas. Uh, I think at, at a, at a kind of higher level, uh, uh, again, I think when people really dig into these things, like it's happening in California now, and you look at cost-benefit of, 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 and not just cost of one thing and benefits of the other, uh, and you look at the uh, – uh, the efficacy on the uh, environmental side and the, and the damage done on the environmental side when you're building new stuff uh, and releasing a lot of CO2. Uh, uh, you know, I think I think it, it starts to shift at some point, but, you know, I wouldn't, uh, the old Keynes thing, you know, I wouldn't bet on it happening uh, happening near term. So, so we don't have any view that the markets are suddenly going to rationalize. Uh, our, our view is, you know, it's a long slog, uh, and and that uh, you're going to get more uh, growth from uh, wind and solar than you are from uh, from gas, and that public policy generally, you know, if sporadically, will will, will favor you know more wind and solar, uh, and and I, I think the the work that people like Gates are doing to kind of point out that uh, the efficacy there is not is not at all high, and you really need to look at things like nuclear. That's going to take a while to play out. Uh, so the the problem you have is when you sell off assets, you sell them off based on today's price curve, and uh, you know we're not big on predicting price curves, and, and generally people in the commodity business are overly optimistic about you know prices, fundamental prices versus. Uh, versus cost curves. Uh, I would say my guess is the best use of the assets will be uh, as people realize the limits of wind and solar and uh, batteries, uh, lithium ion batteries, uh, you know, with four or five hour, you know, durations, uh, as we're starting to see in California, uh, that things will start to normalize. Now in California, you know, and maybe they double down on more of the same until you get a larger problem and then and then maybe they'll pivot i think i think that'll be one of the last states that kind of pivots you know towards reality in the near term uh you know what we really need is better technology in wind and solar and batteries and and i'm afraid this rent seeking regime we've set up has uh, as i understand it has lowered the amount of r&d uh, going into those things. So, so we don't have any kind of rosy scenario. Things are going to pop back uh, uh, on, on gas. I do, I do think even now, even today in California, even from, you know, a year or so ago, uh, we're starting to see more appreciation of, of the math and the physics and, and the economics on the ground. And, and you're seeing it not only kind of in the broad macro, although specialist kind of uh, places, uh, not it hasn't intruded into the the broader discussion yet, uh, uh, but you're seeing it on the ground. Uh, uh, so I think I think it's not fanciful to think that gas is going to start to catch a, a better a better bid here in terms of output sales. Uh, and uh, you know certainly Oxnard's improved over the last year, uh, 
uh, our the prospects for Oxnard. I think I think the uh, outlook for Freddie and Curtis Palmer are improving as well, and 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 they were probably already good. Uh, you know, so we we do feel like we have reached a bit of an inflection point in terms of uh, hydrogen. You know, uh, I'll tell you what, Joe Kofoichi spent more time on that than I have, so we he can talk more. Uh, thoughtfully uh, than I can. Uh, Joe, do you want to weigh in on the prospects for hydrogen as an option? Sure, sure, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I guess the central issue is, you know, when will hydrogen be cost-effective? That, that's always the question with these things, and, you know, is it is it really a commercial option that would be there for us in the time frame that we're looking at? And right now, you know, we're, we're not seeing that. I mean, there are a number of different uh, potential applications and structures using hydrogen. You know, one one of the one uh, that's bandied about is you know, we're going to take essentially worthless, you know, wind and solar power that that we created by overbuilding wind and solar, uh, and and we're, we're going to use that power to manufacture hydrogen, and then we're going to take that hydrogen and we're going to store it, and then we're you know we're going to we're going to inject it in the storage and take it out of storage, and then we're going to convert gas turbines to run on them. You know, there's a significant amount of capital costs from the, the wind and the solar all the way through on that. So I think that the struggle with hydrogen is, uh, I, I think it's going to be a while before we find a, a path forward with hydrogen that, that that's cost effective. Uh, and so, you know, you know, we monitor it. We, we actually were uh, looking at it recently in the in the Calstock area as an option. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's just you know, a, a lot of these things are all three to five years out. You know, you can spend some time getting ready ready for them, but um, you know, there's nothing on the horizon that we're seeing right now that would actually help us uh, with the plants that we have that are, you know, that 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 are uh, either uh, up for recontracting soon or uh, mothballed. And, and, and we have to keep in mind too that the plants that we have that are mothballed right now are in Ontario and they're in northern Ontario, and 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 the biggest problem we have is our location there. You know, we're in the north of the province. We're not in an area of great demand. Uh, and so the plants aren't well situated, you know, obviously to serve Toronto, uh, you know, and, and that's that, that's one of the struggles we face. Yeah, just, Great, just to be uh, just to reiterate, reiterate a point, uh, we're very agnostic on these technologies, and we're very agnostic on public policies. You know, I mean, uh, if you want to do uh, drill baby drill, then that's good for our gas plants. If you want to do Green New Deal, that's good for our hydro plants. Uh, you know, if uh, uh, if you if you have a highly uh, uh, if you believe the climate is highly sensitive to CO2 and the outputs of that are going to be catastrophic in a reasonable time frame, then I think Gates and those people are right that we really need to focus on nuclear urgently and and wind and solar are not helpful. Uh, and I think Gates doesn't say that. He would say, yeah, decarbonization is good, but I, he would say that it, it, it's not nearly enough. And I think James Hansen, who was with NASA and one of the big uh, people early on talked about the CO2, has said the same thing. You know, we're, we're agnostic. We're in the business to make money. We're not, we're not here for any agendas. Like I say, I went to Vermont in 2001 and converted an IPP company into an all-win strategy. I was on the board of a commercial solar developer in New Jersey. Uh, I think our favorite asset class today is hydro. You know, because if you think about the the Venn diagram between the outcomes, uh, I think I think it it is uh, more reliable than things like wind and solar, and uh, it, it it's a price taker. So that if gas prices go up, that's good for it. 
if you start to ban fracking and 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 reduce supply, you're going to increase prices. So that would be good for us. Uh, so we're we're just in this to make money for the shareholders. And uh, you know, we we I sold wind business uh, wind business twice in 2005 and 2008. We had a big pipeline, and I was an early adopter on the wind strategy. And uh, you know, if I, if I thought we could make a ton of money on lithium-ion batteries, we'd jump on it. I think what usually happens is people who ride uh, the, the the green waves and the most popular things, you know, they they end up destroying a lot of capital over time. We saw that with those clean energy tech funds back, uh, uh, you know, 15 years or so ago now. And, and, you know, people, you know, if you look at the, the, the actual performance of wind and solar plants, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're P90 type outcomes and things like that. Uh, it's, it's been a tough slog for, for cash investors on the wind side for the most part. If you're uh, for uh, cash investors, if you're a tax investor, it's, it's been much better. You know, so so we have we have a view that the the kind of high level uh, you know political level analysis of of what actually works and what the economics are and what the math and the physics are uh, really don't follow some of the political you know uh, views on either side. I mean, the, you know, the last four years they focused on subsidies for coal or coal and nuclear. You know, and I just that makes no sense to me, right? Uh, uh, and, and and saying you're going to decarbonize by 2035 is equally nonsensical, uh, you know. But people feel like, oh well, we're 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 at least going in the right direction. But you know, you, you you're not, you know, you're not having a material impact. Uh, but but so that's a public policy thing. I think most people don't weigh in on, on these issues. It's just better to kind of go along with the crowd. But the problem is, if you invest with the crowd you often end up with poor results. And, uh, and so we're, we're not doing anything based on any kind of political agenda or trying to teach the world a better way to do anything. We're just looking at the facts on the ground. And, you know, if, if wind, if, if we can make uh, really attractive uh, uh, returns, picking up wind uh, projects from cash investors that turned out to have poor flip points post their uh, 2001 to 2015 investments, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna jump on that. We we in fact we're 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 talking with uh, with uh, some investors right now about looking at things like that. Uh, uh, you know, I've I've looked at uh, getting uh, uh, a solar commercial developer. You know, we we you know we're open to all of that. It's it's just driven by how can we make money for the shareholders, not by any kind of macro level views. We take our views with a grain of salt. We've got a great deal of epistemological humility around here. Because, you know, when I started the wind company in 2001, you know, I handed out a book on peak oil and said, you know, hey, this is a real thing. And, and, and there was a goat herder immigrant son down in the Woodlands, Texas, George Mitchell, who, who, who showed that we were all wrong about that or every all the consensus was wrong about that. So uh, so so we're very bashful about betting on our ability to forecast any of these things. And we just kind of swing at the pitches that come across the plate. So if we look at, at the next five years while we're looking out into the future, uh, assuming status quo, I know you're, you're going to be looking for opportunities, but if, if nothing comes up, you've talked about uh, 115 to 165 million in discretionary cash. You're projecting uh, repayment of debt to get down to about $258 million. 
Uh, at what point does, does debt get down to a level that it is sustained by your long life assets like, like Curtis Palmer? And then if we look out to 2025, what does the business look like then? Yeah, so I think we, we've said in the past that we can get to net debt uh, uh, zero uh, by 2025, 2027, as I recall. Uh, uh, assuming you know we just focused on the debt, but we don't. We have said in our materials that we don't think that's the most likely way we would go. Um, you know, at the other end of the extreme, you had 180 million, less than 180 million dollar market cap, and you know if you generate, you know, it's uh, up to 165 million of cash, and if you divide two dollars a share into that, you know, yeah, you you you, you can take out. Uh, you know, another 80 million shares. You got 89 million shares outstanding. You know, it's it's uh, it's crazy. The uh, uh, you know, in that scenario, I'd love it. I mean, because I'll be owning my shares, and then at some point, I'll hand them off to my kids, and they're going to own Curtis Palmer on the Hudson River. You know, and good luck trying to replicate that. And they're going to have some gas plants that I think will have you know value that's emerging over the next five years and long lives biomass uh now there there would be practical limits on you know you can't there at some point we can't uh continue to buy shares because there'll be liquidity issues there's regulatory issues there's legal issues i think i think at some point you you stop going down that road and you would you would pivot to well okay we'll spend you know more of the money or all the money at preferreds for a while or or you know we've 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 taken it as far as we can on this share front uh you know, hopefully things emerge over five years where you invest. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't do any investing around here the first three years because we didn't see anything particularly interesting. And we did a lot of selling and, and closing the plants. And then and then for a couple of years, all of a sudden, we, we hit it hard and bought four biomass and we bought uh, hydro. We spent $45 million. You know, so I think over the last five years, if you look at it, we spent $80 million buying in shares and $25 million buying in press. Uh, at at an implied 10% plus return, uh, the common shares at a significant discount to our our base case best estimates of intrinsic value, and then the 45 million dollars of stuff uh, that we bought were, were at uh, uh, you know good return levels, and and you know we we you know uh, continue to think those are going to have turned out to be terrific investments. I'd pull the trigger on them again today if I could do another set like that. Uh, so it'll, it'll be lumpy uh, and opportunistic, uh, you know. But th- those are the major, you know, ways we'll we'll deploy the capital. Does that does that answer your question, or did I? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the color. Thank you. Thank you. And that does conclude the question and answer session. So I'd now like to return the conference back to Jim Moore for any closing comments. Okay. Thanks everybody for getting on with us this morning and. Uh, uh, hopefully that, that helps people think about uh, where we're going with the company. We, we think about this company like uh, uh, we're, we're all our family money's tied up in it and, you know, we're in it for the long haul. And, uh, you know, what would we do if in that scenario and, uh, and we try to act accordingly. Uh, and I think we've had a pretty good record of allocating capital you know the markets don't recognize that there's there's you know probably micro cap issue uh you know uh we're not paying a dividend currently and uh uh you know 
with all the good uses of capital we have, I think the, uh, we're likely to focus our, our capital the way we have the last five years. Uh, but we're willing to pivot whenever we think we can we can do uh, better for the shareholders. Uh, and uh, we're laser focused on shareholder value. That's uh, you know we're we're major shareholders and the insiders I think have gone from something like one percent to four percent. And uh, and we like our position. And uh, uh, but we're also you know keenly aware that uh, uh, we've got a surface value here and. Uh, you know, over the next three to five years, we'll recontract Curtis Palmer and uh, we'll recontract uh, uh, Freddie, and and we'll and and then I think we'll have uh, a lot more clarity. And then and then the question is, what do you do the next three to five years? And the good news is, you know, we've got uh, really a, a high level of cash uh, availability. To, you, know, you look at a kind of a cash, free cash flow yield the next five years; it's terrific. And we've got a lot of great uses. Uh, on our balance sheet, and we've got a lot of liquidity in a revolver. If we start to see better opportunities uh, in, in, the, in the power markets and different asset classes, and that that usually happens, things, things uh, surprise you, and all of a sudden things will go on sale, and then we can we can move quickly uh, in that direction. Uh, so thanks for your interest and participation on the call. Uh, we look forward to updating you uh, on our progress on the year-end conference call. Thanks again. Thank you. The conference has now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. We now disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.